Hello and welcome back to Rocket Point. I hope you're well and having a great day so far. So my name is Harry Damon and with me today is James Cuss and producer Peter Haynes. Now for today's episode we are joined by Liz Beck. Now Liz Beck is an executive coach and NLP practitioner and what NLP is is neuro-linguistic programming. Now I'm not going to give any more away as she joins us now. So good morning Liz, how you doing? Yeah I'm good thank you, it's nice to be with you all. No it's great to have you, how's your week been? Um, well, I'm a bit discombobulated, which is probably my favourite word in the English language. Um, <laughs> because I lost a, lost a day that I, I voluntarily gave up a day to holiday on Monday, which was lovely and a real treat. But that, my brain hasn't quite worked out that it's Wednesday yet. So, so if the kids make it to football <laughs> training tonight, it'll be a miracle. Yeah, otherwise I'm good. Amazing. <laughs> so trying to get, get out of the holiday yeah, yeah, mode and back exactly. into the work mode a little bit. Awesome, awesome. So Liz, could you start us off by maybe, for our audience, giving us a brief background on your upbringing, um, maybe what your relationship was like with your family, and maybe how did this influence your early life and career? Oh, wow, Harry, let's let's start gentle. Um, <laughs> well, I grew up in the village I'm talking to you from now, which is, um, which is sort of quaint, bit weird, and very significant to the rest of the story as to how I'm still here. 45 years later. Um, we'll come back around to that, I'm sure. Um, uh, and I was the first daughter of two to a successful businessman who ran American organisations based here in the UK and a fairly typical homemaking mum. And I adored my father. He was my hero. There's nothing you couldn't do from intellectual to practical. Um, and then at the age of... 11 or 12 well my sister came along when I was seven and then at age of 11 or 12 my parents split up um and my world sort of exploded at that point um and became fairly fragmented so there's, there's lots in that chapter but essentially I I then grew up with my mum watched her struggle for a couple of years then she met somebody else who really glued us all together as a family and was an amazing stepfather and role model um, so we were very, very blessed to have his influence come into our lives. Um, and then he was tragically killed in a car accident when I was 22. So this, this individual who had represented saving, essentially, and, and being the saviour, was just simply taken away from us in a, in a very um, explosive kind of car accident. Um, and it was three weeks before I was getting married. So it was a very strange kind of pressure pot time to be going through that process. Um, so, you know, significant life events that shape the trajectory of, of where we're going to go and how we're going to get there, I suppose. Um, and what came from that fairly quickly, I think, probably through stress was um, my mum's breast cancer and almost simultaneously my sister's anorexia, um, which was triggered by a row essentially she'd had with our stepdad before the accident and so that hadn't been resolved and he was now not here anymore so she was left with this undealt with issue um subsequently learned much more about um, mental health issues and addictions which anorexia is but it's clear there was a propensity ready to be to be lit and the the crash and the unresolved um row was was the was was the ignition really so that's a sort of a potted history of the family side. Running under the underbelly to that was a, in me anyway, a child that became a teenager that became fairly confused and angry with the world. Um, feelings of rejection, feelings of confusion, feelings of being unable to process things. So I essentially was asked to leave school, um, 15 and a half really, was unraveling quite spectacularly I suppose is the short way to describe it we'll leave some of the colour out in case my kids ever listen to this um but yeah unraveling spectacularly um and so I left school with no real qualifications at all um not no GCSEs never went to college never went to sixth form never went to university never got any A-levels um and started being a hairdresser well actually that's a bit glamorous I didn't I started sweeping the hair in a hairdresser's um, and washing hair. I think I think you're known as a junior when you have that glamorous role. So that was really how the trajectory of my life was looking up to the age of about 18 or 19. Wow. Looking, wasn't looking pretty, was it? 
I mean, it's, in, I guess, so, wow. I mean, in terms of the no qualifications, but I just wanted to chat. So you've mentioned, obviously, then you went to the hairdressers. But would you say that the fact you didn't have qualifications in your head, did you feel that limited you? Um, that's a great question. I am not sure I was even capable of thinking beyond the very moment I was in at that point. So um, unless it was right in front of me, I'm not sure I was giving it any conscious attention. Um, I think my other than conscious was aware that some um, hang-ups and demons were being laid down um, and, and beliefs about what did that mean if I didn't have an education and, and what, where did that pitch me against the rest? Right. So some self-imposed limitations were probably sitting there. I see. It's a bit more comparison of other people had this, I didn't have that, and then you kind of put yeah. that in you. Yeah, but interestingly, um, I grew up with a father, you know, before they separated, who was a very driven and successful businessman and who would lay down some key mantras. I, I have a sense that we all grow up with certain mantras in our lives, the family messaging, the family connotations. And one of the ones he gave me, um, for good and for bad, because there's light and dark for everything, was, um, you know, be the first in the office and the last to leave because there'll always be 100 people in the job queue ready to take your job off you. And you've got to think this is generational. So we're, we're early 90s. Um, and the, what he was instilling in me was this work ethic, this get up, show up, and put, your place, put yourself in the right place with the right attitude and you'll be okay. And so although I was aware of not having the academic backing, at the same time, something in some ways it didn't limit me and it wasn't getting in the way because I had this other message that had come from someone I really respected and loved, you know, uh, early on in my life. And that one belief trumped the other and that enabled me to drive forward. Yep. Definitely. I think that's a brilliant message. And there's so many people out there that don't have that qualification to things and will limit themselves. But actually, you don't need them. You, if you have that other lessons, that other mindset, that sort of thing, you really can do whatever yeah. you want really um i guess one mantra that i got told is yeah you'd rather be uh, a minute early or, or an hour early sorry than a minute yes. late sort of thing i then heard of a speech and that's yeah. it's too true it is i've sat outside meetings yeah. just waiting because i'd rather be there early and arrive bang on time or just before than be brushing yeah. around and being late okay so following the hairdressing would you be able to take us a little bit further on in, in your yeah. career yeah so um so I distinctly remember washing someone's hair once. Now, you know, it, I, well, you guys might not know, but when you, when you go to the hairdressers as a lady, <laughs> you'll have your colour washed off or you'll have your hair washed in preparation and, and you'll sit at a chair with the wash bowl behind you. So someone's washing your hair from behind. And I remember a day when, um, it was no different to any other day particularly, but the conversation was another groundhog moment where this lady was telling me about her husband's job and what she was going to cook him for tea that night. And I stress to remember the era we're in. We're in the early 90s. So this is not an untypical pattern, and I make no judgment about it. Um, in fact, if anything, there are days I crave to be having those kind of priorities in, in my life now because you know, we've, we swing our pendulum. But I remember distinctly thinking, um, there's a real possibility I'm going to... Um, turn the tap up too hot or or strangle somebody with the the washing hose because I don't think I can take any more conversations that don't have any depth or meaning or mental stretch and there was this space where there was there was um I suppose an awareness that on paper there was a version of me that didn't stack up spectacularly because it didn't have the requisite qualifications and yet there was this actual version of me that was challenging and sparky and bright and determined and and bored out of her skull listening to this and so there was a gap that I needed to somehow fill much of what I'm telling you is in the benefit of processing in hindsight I certainly wouldn't have known this in that moment but I did know the feeling in that moment which was kill me now can't take any more of this um, and it wasn't the hairdressing that I couldn't take any more of. It was the the lens for the future and the possibilities ahead. The thought of it, me staying in this space, was what was felt suppressive, oppressive. Um, so 
I thought, I don't know what to do now. This is a problem. Um, and I'm only really working this out now as I'm saying it to you live, um, because what I did was something that may or may not seem normal to others. And I went home and I got out of the wardrobe. <laughs> oh, it was horrific. This bright red suit with shoulder pads, dreadful thing it was, but I keep stressing the era we were in. And I put it on and I literally, I lived in Horsham at the time, and I literally went round door knocking. Door knocking on businesses looking for jobs. Um, and, and the bit I've only just connected is where, where the hell did that come from? Who taught me that? Because I didn't come out of the womb with that, that belief or that knowledge. None of us do. Um, and I think it was my nan, my brilliant, vivacious nan who walked into a room and lit it up. And she would always say, you know, pick yourself up, brush yourself down, put your lippy on, put a smile on your face and get back out there. Um, so there was this innate sense of just get out there. Just get out there, smile and be determined. So I door knocked. And eventually I knocked on the door of a chartered accountant in Horsham. It was called the Alan Kent Partnership. And um, Alan Kent was the leading partner and he was looking for a PA. I was sweeping hair at this point. So he's looking for a PA to the senior partner. So for some reason he let me in the building to start with and we had a conversation. I think I was 18. And um, he said to me, you know, I was, I was full of the usual patter and charm. And he said to me, look, um, I'd love to, but I need a serious PA here. I'm a busy man and you just don't have any experience. Um, and I said something along the lines of, I know, but I guarantee you it'll be the best hire you ever make if you just trust me and give me a chance. So he did. Um, call him brilliant or foolish. I don't know. Thankfully for me, on my first day, he was out for the entire day because I spent the entire day in the toilets with the Microsoft Word manual trying to work out how to use it. I had no idea how to use Word or Excel. Anyway, a bit of grit, determination, the ability to read. Nothing's rocket science. It wasn't brain surgery on children. So I could do it. I was determined to believe I could do it. And, you know, I made lots of mistakes, but that's what learning's built from and got that job. So did that for a while, first office job. And I thought, I quite like business. I quite like the notion of supply and demand and profit and margin. And what's the difference between all of these numbers? Um, and, but I also had this itch for human behavior. I was a dreadful people watcher. I used to sit in Peary's place and just for hours watch people go by. I hadn't put the connections together. Um, and I think frustrated psychologists probably. But in my head, that ship had passed. I'd left home. I had bills now. This was something I wasn't going to go back into education. Um, so I started to get curious about what was then personnel, this space where some sort of human behavior and the commercial business context start to come together. But again, I had no experience. So um, I applied for an HR administrator's job. Um, and because I had some PA experience, that enabled me to get that role started had a great boss who believed in me. I was very lucky to have male bosses for most of my career and they were willing to put me in a job that was about a size too big for me each time and then create enough space for me to try and fail. Um, and they would invest in me and they sent me on courses and eventually they sent me on my um, post-grad CIPD learning for HR. And bit by bit, I went from HR administrator to get the first level of qualification and then up into an office and advisor and a business partner role and moved through. And so that career path kind of went from that first HR administrator's job um, into smaller organizations where I had more remit, you know, big fish, small pond stuff, and then eventually into Novartis Pharmaceuticals. So big pond, tiny fish, great boss, over-promoted me and then when when we were out of public eye and I my knees were knocking he was supporting and helping help me grow and bit by bit you know that led to the role at the body shop and looking after HR for the UK there and, and that's really how the corporate career on paper at least unfolded. You, you definitely um you, you could your your upbringing uh, as you mentioned your your father um almost gave you that discipline or um and that that work ethic and that and that determination and then your grandmother you know just saying brush yourself off and you know get back on your feet 
Um, and then, you know, your stepfather obviously had that, that you know, provide that emotional support and that stability. Um, and I guess that equipped you, well, I mean, obviously you're, you made your own luck by putting on that red dress. And it, it also you, you got to the point where you couldn't take it anymore. And I, almost, I, I always think about when people hit rock bottom, and it could, there's different levels of rock bottom, but even if it's like, I can't bear this anymore, you, it then creates that action. And you, you've got to, you know, well, I, I think some people might put up with it and stay. Um, but, you know, you, you saw the window and you had to change something. And, and you know, and then you've kind of progressed since and, you know, it sounds like you've had some great um, bosses over the years um, and, but you've always pushed yourself. I mean, that, that has to come from within, doesn't it? Because it, it um, what, what's your, um, how, how would you describe drive? Obviously in HR, you've seen um, all different types of people and in different roles. Um, what is your relationship with drive and how, can you, can you put your finger on what, what that is? Um, it's a great question. Uh, lots of things you just said. I mean, there's degrees of rock bottom, um, and and certainly that moment in the hairdress is is nowhere near some of the other versions of rock bottom. However, it has something that they all share, which is the ingredients or the essence or the infusion, however you want to describe it, of when something is enough. And I think enough is a really important word for us all to have some understanding of our relationship with. You know. Um, how much is enough money? How many promotions are enough? How many cars are enough? How many houses are enough? Um, how much misery is enough to change? We, you know, we have, we, and it's different for each of us. So, so the motivation is either away from or towards, you know, we are hardwired to our basic kind of, um, um, evolutionary principles get away from pain there's a saber-toothed tiger chasing you it's going to eat you get away from it our adrenal response kicks in we run and then we're supposed to rest that down and breathe through and re-establish our nervous system so that we can perform again it's why athletes don't run and and um, train at the same pace seven days a week they have built-in rest periods for exactly the same reason it's why a dog will run when you throw a ball and then it will come back and sleep and and rest its breathing and recover and I, I digress slightly but but what humans we don't do so well despite being the more sophisticated species it's alleged although i'd give that a good debate when you look at what we do to our own habitat um we live in a, in a system where without being clear about what is enough we have a habit of putting ourselves into high adrenal state almost permanently because we live in a world where we're so um, exposed to external influences that tell us enough isn't there it's up here and off we go again so so there's we we create quite a bit of um stress in there and sometimes this drive question can be confused between what is what is it for me and what is it i'm allowing others or the world to put on to me um and this point about my dad is really interesting because, like I said, everything's light and dark. The light is, it made me ambitious, it made me driven, it made me um, get up and do stuff, combined with my nan's messaging as well. Um, but it had a dark side, which is that when overplayed, it created a form of self-harm, as most of our um, kind of behavioural patterns do. So... In the corporate context, without having clarified enough for myself, just taking dad's messaging, if you can imagine, it's like building a house without building foundations first. So I'm just running the be first, be promoted, be last, leave the office. So I'm knackered, I'm burning out. And essentially what I've turned myself into is a performer, but I don't mean a high commercial performer. I mean, Think of the word performer in its truest sense. Go onto the stage as somebody else and perform. Put on a show for the audience. And that's an unhealthy version if you sustain it for too long because you're in that permanent adrenal state. So I guess, you know, the, the question about drive is, have we stopped to consider what is enough for each of us? What are we motivated away from or towards? And... Is, it, is that going to create the, um, the energy and the force to move forward with something? And, and it's different for all of us, but I work a lot with people who 
haven't stopped to explore those questions and they're on a treadmill of just more, more, more. And the question for me is, well, what will be enough? And when you've got that, what will that mean for you? Have you, have you sat with that? That's really, that, that so is very interesting. interesting. So do you believe in a balance? Is a balance achievable or is a balance uh, achievable? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a balance is bloody hard work. Yeah. Um, it's like the holy grail, I think. Um, balance is is so key. Um, I'm certainly on a daily quest to find it and stay with it. Um, we have so much around us pulling us off balance all the time in every respect. It's our relationships, our workspace, our parenting. Um, and that's why I think it's really important to be, be mindful of the company you keep and to be clear on the practices you have in your life for, how do you want to describe this, balance, health, well-being, um, the, the whole psychological system. If your body, mind and soul are not in some form of alignment or balance you are going to have challenges in your mind body or soul somewhere so the question for me is um how do we how do we help mind body and soul stay in balance and and the answer is practice so what are you practicing are you practicing being a great alcoholic are you practicing being a great gambler are you practicing being a workaholic or are you practicing your meditation or your spiritual connection or your food interest? You know, wh what are you doing that are the practices that keep the equilibrium in your nervous system? Because your nervous system, this is not some fluffy nonsense, your nervous system drives your brain's performance. So if anybody wants to challenge about, oh, that's all just, you know, cross-legged meditation and candle lighting stuff, you, you crack on, but your nervous system's connected to your brain functioning. So I think balance is critical and um, it's hard to find. So you be careful what you're practicing. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk Back to the podcast. And like you said earlier, it might mean, you know, balance is different for every individual, um, potentially, but like you'd mentioned, it's the, the, the spiritual self the, the rest piece there's a time to work really hard there's a time to spend with your family i know you didn't mention that but i mean i guess it's you know we, we live complex lives um and sometimes it's hard to, to i mean i i know that i i have a you know i i struggle is probably a negative word but it's challenging um to to because you can't keep everyone happy all the time and there's certain things things to do but you know when do you when is enough enough when when do you think harry and i talked about this didn't we last week as far as you know feeling guilty when you're not working you know um, we had this conversation around that and um there are times when you need to put both feet in and work your you know work work your socks off um but there's but when when have you done enough <laughs> you, you need rest too like you just um mentioned this yeah, and I think that um, it's it's a complex area. But when you think about, I feel guilty for not working. My encouragement would be to notice you feel the guilt, but know a feeling only comes from a belief. So the triangle is: I have a belief. The belief creates the emotion or feeling, and that drives the behaviour. So if I believe not working is bad, I will probably trigger guilt and guilt will make me work harder. The question then is, what's the consequence for that? 
will that in short term give me great success or will it suffer my family or suffer me or you know you've got to assess and analyze it for yourself but the starting sequence for the behavior reversing to the emotion begins with a belief so my real question is who does that belief belong to because you didn't come none of us we didn't come out the womb with it we collected it somewhere we basically go into the world and all these bits of velcro beliefs suddenly attach themselves to us and we don't often peel them off and go uh, i'm not sure about you you know we take them and then they get really well glued on and just like my dad's one his belief because of his generational upbringing was the doll queue's long you better be the first in the last out and it drove it was a belief he passed to me it served me by making me ambitious it also hurt me by making me exhausted so the examination of the belief is it mine or did i get it from someone else i, I love the idea of this dark and light because and and i you know i think we're all conditioned a certain way depending on our upbringing depending who like you made a comment liz about who you surround yourself with um there's relationships we outgrow in different parts it served you for that period of time and then you discard it but then you might look at these little patches on you and say okay and recognize there's a light and dark um and when it starts to hurt you you might want to then step up step away you're always going to have triggers to make you feel these these feelings i mean um if i may so um my family we, we um we we sold 95 percent of everything we owned in 2012 to finance a world trip um and our children at the time were five seven and nine um, and everyone tells you, you know, when you have children, you can't do anything. Anyway, we, we, but for, for us to do that, we literally had to sell everything. And I remember the reaction from my, uh, my wife's grandfather. Um, he was so angry we were doing it. I mean, literally, he was spitting blood, effing and blinding. Felt, he said I was, he, he was saying, irresponsible. He said, a day not worked is a day lost. Again, that's his belief. Um, mm -hmm. And he was mantra. so angry. Mm -hmm. And we actually, we found that when we did this, um, you got two reactions. Either people were so excited because it was amazing or they were angry. There was no in between. It was, it was the best, it was the best thing we ever did. We were off the grid for 18 months. We were nomads. Um, and then of course you, you, you get a job and you, you start building back up and you know, I've never looked back, I've, you know, uh, materially you start accumulating stuff again. Um, but it was the best thing we ever did. It's a great example. It's a no, it's a fantastic example because it speaks to so many things. One is granddad had a set of beliefs. Doesn't make him good or bad, right or wrong. They just were his set of beliefs and he shared them with the, with, I think about the triangle, belief, emotion, behavior, with such emotion because of how strongly he held them. And they would have been, they would have made perfect sense to him in his context as a man of his generation. You didn't share those beliefs, so you must have held some other beliefs as a family that said this is worth us doing. We're motivated towards that. We don't share the fear that you're describing. Um, so it talks to people's maps of the world. I talk a lot about what, what's your map of the world, because your map and mine are not the same. So be really careful with the language we use, because I'm a, if I pick the wrong word about my opinion, I could trample all over your precious map. And you see this a lot with, particularly with equality issues and diversity issues. You know, people have a, a strongly held belief or opinion and they'll articulate it and it will go smack into the, the map of somebody else's world. And this is how we have conflict and we have wars and we have lack of understanding. Um, but you, know, you, you also talk about what's the definition of riches, actually, you know, to granddads, you are absolutely wittering away and making unsafe the future for your family in his map of the world. To yours, you've collected riches of a depth and memory and emotional somatic context that, that no new sofa could ever touch. So, and this is why nobody's ever right. There are no truths. There's just our version of the truth and how we deploy it. Yeah, nicely said, that's brilliant, I like it. Super interesting. And actually, Liz, you mentioned a couple of things earlier about obviously the influence from your nan and your dad and obviously that belief and stuff. But I'd be interested to touch on actually social media a little bit, actually, and maybe the, the, the fake belief that is getting implanted. I, social media is not the problem. The problem is the relationship we're having with social media and the beliefs we're holding 
and it's back to the bricks without the foundation it's like if we haven't got solid foundations in terms of ourselves then the bricks of social media you should drive this or look like that they're they're very easy to be to be landing fragile and the most important relationship we need to have is the one with ourselves because the one thing i can guarantee is life will not go smoothly for any of us miserable as that sounds we will all experience financial challenges health challenges relationship breaks up rejection death and trauma miserable as that is and so if we if we haven't become equipped inside ourselves to handle that stuff and that doesn't mean breeze through it that just means handle it then we're going to really struggle and so i have a concern when so much of social media has us working outside ourselves my hair my skin my clothes my size my job my car my girlfriend my boyfriend my the external trappings no problem with having them i don't i don't live in a shed right i've got a nice house and a nice car and a nice wardrobe full of clothes um but there's a difference between having those and being critically dependent on those because when the next trauma comes in any of our lives you need to be able to come home to yourself you need to know what have i got to hold on to what are my practices for mind body and soul alignment um and if and if the answer to joy or happiness is based on the number on the scales or the size of the trousers or the car on the drive you could be a little bit knackered when the tough times come so for me it's about building your equipment and your resilience like you're about to go over the trench have you got your armory are you ready because it is not going to be a smooth battle out there um and the best example well i've got a few examples of this but i suppose the best one i've got and it's current for me is um we have four children and um one of them is 15 and he um 10 days ago went to school um he's six foot one legs like you've never seen and he went to school a 160 year old originally catholic run by nuns school um, and strode through the gates in the girl's skirt uniform. First boy ever to do it. Um, this is no surprise to most of us who know him, but it's a big difference, I think, to in the safety of your own um, community and tribe, hence the be careful of the people you spend time with, um, than it is to stride through the gates of school at 15 in, in that um, very visible way, because you can't miss him, he's tall. And I thought a lot about, you know, what's the world going to serve back up to him? Because, you know, the world's capable of cruel stuff and it will be based on other people's beliefs and their maps of the world and what they've been taught and all the stereotypes and everything that exists out there. So my the last 15 years, my one of my biggest priorities has been to build and help him build his foundations so that whenever and whatever happens when he goes outside that front door, he can come home to something in himself that says instead of saying oh my god what's wrong with me i wish i wasn't like this he's able to say i know that some people don't understand yet they'll get there when they're ready but i'm cool and that's a very different space so i, I think that it's a long-winded answer to the social media question but social media is just one one tool that can um shake us up if our foundations are strong, we've got a better chance of surviving the, the shakes when they come. Definitely, definitely, that's a great answer. And you talk about obviously that again, it comes back to surrounding yourself with the right people. And your your son is surrounded by well, you, and you're putting on those developed core. You're helping him build the confidence, helping him face, like you say, the world can be a cruel place. And I think that's a brilliant sort of thing that you're building with him. Um, James, did you have a question there? So I have three daughters. Um, eldest is sixteen, and she is convinced she's obese. Um, but she is absolutely, she's a beautiful 16 year old. Um, and, but it's the social media and it, it, it's challenging. Uh, and I always think, I think this has come up before, you know, do we equip our children to struggle in life? Because as you said, you know, uh, life is full of hardships. And, and to be honest, when you do struggle, that kind of, it makes you who you are and it builds character. Um, but I think, um, but my other two daughters, um, aren't really that interested. One of them is 
she's quite um, big on it, but but she's very self-confident. Um, and my other daughter has no interest whatsoever, which actually has its own challenges because they're the tools that that uh, young people communicate with, uh, and she you know she needs to build up her friendship groups. Um, so I think, um, like you said, I think there's light and dark. I think um, young people these days have a higher IQ than our generation and the generation before that. Um, the access to information is incredible, um, but it's how you filter the good and the bad. And sometimes the, the well, the, the lines are blurred and there's lots of misinformation out there. Um, but you almost have to, you know, our children or you know, people have to find out for themselves. But it's, it is, it's a challenging one. Um, it actually makes me think of abstinence. I was going to ask you about what you what you thought of abstinence, um, because when people are maybe in some bad habits or um, they're in this, this situation that they might not like to be in. Anyway, and I thought of abstinence earlier, so it's kind of I'm mixing the two up, um, because that also you know social media and you know how do you manage your time on it? Um, but abstinence is a I guess a standalone question. Yeah, um, lots of things you just said there, James. I mean. Again, I'm very aware of my somatic responses. My my body, and this is true for all of us, and I've got some special gift. I've just paid a, quite a lot of time paying attention to it. But my body responded when I heard you say about your daughter. Um, and I know why, because behind that body emotion response is a belief and an experience, which is my sister's anorexia that was 16 years long, um, had her in and out of most... Uh, UK eating disorder institutions, um, most of which I wouldn't leave a dog in. I am going back 16 years, so God willing, they've improved. Um, and far too many occasions where there was a very real chance she wasn't going to wake up the next morning. And this is a master's, unlike her sister, this is a master's educated journalist. So no lacking of, no kind of, the, oh, we're not bright enough filters, quite the opposite. Um, but this came from the impact of divorce and devotion to her dad and that separation early on and it laid itself down there was a propensity that laid itself down um and, and that's why i felt that somatic response because i have watched and journeyed a pathway around eating that's not to suggest that your daughters and this are anything alike but that awareness um and so i think you know that was probably the first time i learnt the importance of being of freedom because essentially what anorexia does is it creates a cage for you to be trapped in your own head a cage of beliefs i believe i'm fat i believe i'm not good enough i believe no one will love me unless dot 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 fill in the blanks um and and all addictions are based on this um this happens to be an addiction to the feeling of starvation versus the addiction of alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex or whatever else it might be and I think I didn't know it then, but it was in those 16 years I started to develop my obsession with being a freedom fighter, essentially. And so the work I do today, way outside of the HR stuff, is around coaching people who can, yes, they might be a CEO of a business. Yes, they might be doing a turnaround. Yes, they might be building a new, a new organization. But fundamentally, to be a great leader, they have to know themselves to be able to turn up in congruent alignment with themselves because it all goes horribly wrong when things are not aligned and organizations don't trust their leader slight digression but that's the connecting part and and what i find is many of us are not free from our own beliefs they they cage us in some form or another even if it's little snippets like the guilt belief it cages us or the um, be the first in last out belief it cages us it doesn't give us the freedom and i think that um, the abstinence issue is, is about what can we work on to enable us to let go of certain things, let go of certain needs, beliefs, um, obsessions, desires, whether they're work ones or whether they're appearance related. Uh, and as parents, you know, um, there'll be many that don't share this view and I'm certainly not an authority on parenting. I just have four, you know, they don't come with manuals. Like we're all making a mess of this. That's half of the generational passing on. Um, gift but I've taken a view with the children that um, in the same way I wouldn't give them unlimited access to alcohol I'm not going to give them unlimited access to tech either and they can hate me as much as they would if I didn't let them go out in a push-up bra or drinking vodka with a straw 
And so I just follow the same rules in my mind of my job as your parent is to be your parent first and your friend second. And there are some boundaries that I may get wrong, but my job in this, in this chapter of your life is to, is to make my best judgments. And if they're wrong, we'll talk about them later when you're an adult. But for now, unlimited exposure to an Xbox or a social media platform is the same as giving you a, um, a packet of 40 fags and a lighter. I'm not going to do it. So I'm really mindful about those parameters and I'm very aware of the impact of the dopamine response, you know, that, that reward chemical that you get from those um, social media activities. I was never, I'll never forget my now 19-year-old stepson um, when he was 15, told me a story of a girl at his school who would take a photo of herself, spend 40 minutes filtering it till it almost didn't look like her, would then post it and spend the next 20 minutes monitoring the picture and if it didn't have whatever was enough likes in that 20 minutes, she'd take the picture down. And I was so struck by this story and I was thinking, my God, you know, what, what is driving that behaviour? What are you motivated towards in that space and how cripplingly unhealthy? That's a cage of itself, right? So that, that answers the question, but that would be my thoughts on it. We need to have some controls. And I think as a, as a parent, we can put controls in for a child. I think as an adult, we have to decide what controls we're going to put in for ourselves. And this is why things like dieting or just getting fit are tough, right? If you don't, if you haven't done the work on your version of enough, your map of the world, your beliefs, and you just say, right, I'm going on a diet or I'm going to exercise, you're trying to force something on to a layer that hasn't established itself because its criteria is quite transactional, you know, lose weight, tone up, whatever it might be. Um, and that's why I think we, we start well and then we, we fall off quite quickly because we don't see the results fast enough. But if we've done the work on who do I want to be? Who am I? Am I okay with the bits that are a bit work in progress and a bit, you know, still a bit dark? They're not right yet. And can I celebrate the bits about me that I damn well know I'm loved for or I love about myself? Except that we're all a work in progress to the minute they turn the lights out, because we are. Um, if we've stopped being a work in progress, either we've stopped having a pulse or we've stopped learning, and I wouldn't advocate either of those. So if we can accept that we are light and dark and we're work in progress, then I think we can, we can learn in a sustainable way as opposed to trying to have these spikes of quick achievement, quick results. I mean, you don't find lasting love by swiping left on Tinder. You don't get promoted to be the head of the organisation after your three-month probationary period. But because you could order your trainers on Amazon and they'd be there tonight, our brains are wired to think those things are true. And I think we need to help our children and help future generations understand, I'm afraid there's some basic truth in you got to put in the work and the good times will come. It's also um, learning to love, love ourselves or, um, and, uh, and also recognise our strengths. Uh, and if, if people can, they know who they are, um, the sooner they can start being their authentic selves, whether it's in a work environment or at home or, or whatever, in relationships, then there's no fakery. It's, they are being themselves. And the fact that we are, I don't know what the probability is, but it's some trillion to one chance that we're even alive, um, it's like we, we've got a real gift and I think the sooner people can start realizing that they are special um, and they have something to bring the world and to love themselves then then they're going to be more equipped to do their best work and love other love somebody else um, and then the other thing that kind of springs to mind just you talking about um, you know that I guess I guess to get I guess it's genuine reasons for doing things and not just getting sucked into this, this instant gratification world, whether it's the dopamine fix on social, um, it's, it, it, it's getting into really good habits. Well, have you read The Power of Habit? Um, it, so there's, there's always gonna be the trigger points to do certain behaviors, um, but getting into those healthy habits and love ourselves, um, then we can be better humans. Yeah. It's true. Uh, and love ourselves is a big ask, right? People say it a lot, like, but don't underestimate what a massive ask that is. Um, and if you can't get there yet, because that feels too aspirational, um, that's okay. But just spend some time knowing yourself. At one of my bottom of the bottom moments in life, um, which had come soon after having spent 25 years 
um, and this won't be on camera, so it's hard to convey, but kind of um, deluding myself I'd made it corporately. Um, all of that had been based on my capabilities. Now, was I the first in? Did I work the hardest? Did I deliver the most projects? Did I drive the greatest results? And when that all came crashing around my ears quite spectacularly, um, somebody asked me, well, who are you then? And this question took me to the ground and put me on the canvas for weeks. I couldn't answer it. I didn't know who I was. I could tell you what I could do. I could tell you all of my achievements and abilities from a corporate HR business creating perspective. I couldn't tell you who I was and I couldn't tell you what was enough for me. Um, and as I say, it took me down and it, it held me down for some time. Um, people ask me all the time, well, how did you resolve that? Um, I'd love to say there's some scientific clever answer, but actually what I did is I walked the dog on the beach until his feet were sore. And I had a notepad and I asked myself over and over, what are the things that you would get upset about? What were the things that would bring you joy? And what are the things you would fight for? And on this notepad, over a course of weeks, what became clear was there was a series of words that told really what I believe in. They, they said what I really cared about. And essentially, your beliefs are your identity. By looking at the words that reflected what I would fight for, laugh for, love for, cry for, I was able to see who I am. And from that place, I might not have loved it. In fact, I definitely didn't. And I could see the light and I could see the dark and I could accept it was work in progress. So I might not have loved it, but I did know and still do and build on it. I know who I am. And if you know who you are, you can then make conscious choices about, so what kind of parent do you want to be? What kind of husband do you want to be? What kind of CEO do you want to be? Because you just don't have to fake it. And I had a coaching client yesterday afternoon who um, three times he said to me before I stopped him, um, I just want to be able to live with myself and be like everybody else. Uh, and each time he said it, uh, there's some somatic changes. And, and in the end, I asked him, um, what would it be like if he didn't have to be like somebody else? He was worried about being socially awkward and struggling in public environments. And lit he's literally causing himself stress and trauma of forcing himself to go into places and do things that and don't make him happy and aren't reflective of who he is so what would it be like if you didn't do that to yourself yeah freedom right freedom is is definitely underrated it's also your your yes. you know you your walks on the beach it takes work you know you've got to be it's almost like yeah. when you're at the, even at the hairdressers you knew you had to make a change um if you know you're not yeah happy or fulfilled or whatever it is it takes work sometimes to get through all the layers um and 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 you do it on a consistent basis i mean even love is a verb isn't it I mean, let's face it you know it's not just one thing yeah. Um, yeah. you've got to work at it um and it and it really really hurt <laughs> like this was not joyful time this hurt and simultaneously what happened was I broke up a relationship with my business partner who I loved and adored. I broke up a marriage of 18 years and watched my children, the impact of that on my children, um, who, uh, from a man who is a very, very good man and I love dearly, he's like my brother, but, we, but that wasn't a marriage anymore. And I moved home back here because through the process of who am I, I realized that a significant, one of the significant practices that helped me be aligned is being here by this beach. The other practice is meditation, daily meditation. And so to be in balance, to be the best mother I could be, to have the next marriage and healthy relationship I'm in now, to rebuild a business and take it to where I wanted it to be, to do the work in the world I wanted it to do, I had to know who I was, but I also had to know what were the practices that make the best version of me? Um, because you have to practice, right? You have to practice to be an Olympian. You have to practice to be a CEO. You have to practice to be a parent. So you need to know what are, you, what are your practices and what's the company you keep? 
those would be my two greatest learnings from what was a very painful time it was really really powerful peter um you've been very quiet i know you're like do you have any questions for liz i do but a lot of them have been kind of answered um i guess i just want to ask do you so i was going to ask uh would you be able to kind of come up with a quick exercise uh for say for me for example to discover what is enough for me um but i think a lot of the steps you just mentioned kind of cover that in certain ways so um i'll just ask what useful resources would you want to share with uh, the audience whether that's youtube channels books podcasts um maybe for someone that is just starting on this journey to discover kind of who they are and what is enough for them or someone that's kind of a year into it or yeah just uh anything that'd be useful would be really interesting to hear and and if i may just to caveat that so peter um is you're at a time of you're going through a lot of changes personally right now yeah um yeah and there's lots of changes lots of exciting changes in your life yeah so just to put that there so it might just uh... <laughs> yeah so yeah probably don't mind i said that <laughs> no no it's absolutely fine yeah yeah um Oh goodness, it's sort of a life's, it's a life's work, Peter is the honest answer. Um, I mean, if I ever get through all the books I've bought because they are so important to read, it'll be a miracle. So I kind of, um, I'll tell you a couple of things that spring to mind and, and I've learned to trust my gut more than my brain. And, and that would be a key message. We have three brains, head, heart, and gut. Use them in the opposite order, gut, heart, and head. Pay attention to what's going on below your belly button, your belt feel gut instinct it's a real thing then see if your heart goes with that and use your brain lastly to check cognitively any data around it that would be one thing the second thing i would that's brilliant (laughs) like it (laughs) the second thing i would say is um look up somebody called dr teriah trent t-e-r-e-r-a-i trent Um, She has an incredible backstory, having been third generation female in in an African country where by the age of 18, she was married with four kids and and her life trajectory was laid out for her. Um, I won't spoil the story, but she changed that life spectacularly. And she talks about there being two great hungers in our lives. The first hunger is the small hunger and it's the hunger for instant gratification it's the hunger for material things to be noticed to be validated to get something quickly and she talks about the second hunger being the great hunger of our lives which is the hunger for meaning and for purpose it's the thing that attaches us to some certainty and when asked well how the hell do we find our great hunger then dr trent because that would be nice you know her answer was um pay attention to the things that break your heart because if it breaks your heart, it matters, and therefore it has meaning for you. So that that's something I'm very aware of when I did the beliefs exercise. Um, I, I suppose the other thing would be, um, and so I'd read about her. The other um, book I would recommend, or if you're an audio or a visual, this is all over the internet and, and podcasts and video, is a book called Seat of the Soul. And the author is Gary Zukav, Z-U-K-A-V. And um, he was sort of made famous by Oprah. She, she pulled him out of a retreat where he lived without television. He didn't even know who she was when she phoned up and said, I'm Oprah Winfrey. He had no idea who she was, which I think is brilliant. Um, and he has a premise and he wrote a book that suggests, um, if you imagine a big mothership, like a pirate mothership with the big sails and behind it, lots of little baby ships that are all following in the slipstream of that main ship. And the... Um, the main ship is the ship of our soul. It's our soul that knows why we're here and it's our soul that knows what we're meant to be doing in our lives. And the baby ships are little elements of our personality, the different facets of who we are, because we've got multiple facets. And he describes that when the baby ships are in the slipstream of the mothership, things feel like in tune. We've all had that feeling. It doesn't last as long as we'd like, but it's like, yeah, this is, this is a bit Zen. It's kind of, it's working. I'm on my path. It feels like I've got a plan. This is going to run. And then we get those interruptions in our life where things feel a bit more kind of like, it's like a kind of scratchy. It's, it's not settled. It doesn't feel right. There's, there's something palpable and we can't quite get to it. 
and he suggests that that's an indication that one or some of the baby ships of our personality have slipped out of the slipstream. In other words, we've started to perform to other people's expectations and we've lost sight of our mothership, our own soul. So it's that notion again of coming back to our, ourselves. Um, and I, so I just think those, those kind of notions are really interesting to hang out with and, um, and, and you know, get big bits of paper and just scribble down words that represent what do I love, what do I hate, what would I fight for, what would make me cry? Um, what are the beliefs I hold? Well, who gave me that? Is it true or is it false? Don't bin it just because someone else gave it to you. It might be useful to borrow, but don't just take it automatically. And through that scribbling and drawing, a very emergent picture can, can start to come. Um, so I think they're two really great kind of authors and teachers. Um, and the one that's really been my salvation through lockdown is Elizabeth Gilbert. So Elizabeth Gilbert wrote um, Eat, Love, Pray, which became the film with Julia Roberts, Eat, Love, Pray. Bit cheesy chick flick, but you know, it's okay. But what Liz Gilbert's gone on to do is um, really immerse herself in her practices and talks a lot about this journey of finding balance and alignment in yourself and making life choices, relationship choices, career choices. This is not kind of a zen yogi retreat fluffy nonsense this directly correlates to some of the world's greatest leaders you know the steve jobs of this world would have been very clear about practices oprah does it's 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 all of our all you've got to do is look at an athlete or a sporting team to look at what they do to be high performing and it starts with this stuff that sounds great and i guess it comes back to down to what what's enough for you that that enough message that you've been sharing throughout the whole podcast is that figuring out what is enough for you but also yeah what really kind of makes you happy sort of um well we are sadly running out of time um but i guess two final things from me so liz quickly if we could arrange you to have a coffee with anybody who would it be and why um nelson mandela because even saying his name moves me to tears and i feel it here so um i know that that matters because I'm a freedom fighter and he represents that journey and his book title, I think sums up everything we've talked about in the journey of life, which is, is a long walk to freedom. There is no instant gratification. It won't work like Amazon. It's a long walk and you need to be equipped for the journey. And I guess one final thing, if people want to get in touch with you, want to follow you on social media, want to check out your consultancy, where can they find you? Um, that's a great question that I'm really rubbish at. Um, <laughs> they can find uh, the, the company website, so the consulting part of my world, um, which has the HR and the, the skill development and the coaching stuff, but the coaching stuff would drift into this territory we've talked about more, um, at aspiringhr.com. And they can find me on Instagram at Lizbeck Coaching. Um, where else should they find me? They can find me on LinkedIn at Lizbeck. So hopefully that gives enough ways to get to me. Perfect. Sounds good. You can also see on your website, you're on a BBC News. Oh, so I was. Perfect. Fantastic. Excellent yes. you as well. Yes. So, there you go. <laughs> Great. I think, I think that was really insightful. Um, thank you so much for being a part of RocketPod. It's been really nice to meet you. My pleasure. Yeah, really loved the conversation. Thank you for asking me. Thank you as always for listening to today's episode of Rocket Pop. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Liz as much as we did. And something that I really enjoyed about that conversation was learning about that Velcro scenario where when you're born and go throughout life, you have all these external influences and factors and lessons that kind of are stuck to you. Um, and it's your choice whether you're going to continue believing in these influences or you're going to remove the Velcro and actually say, no, I'm not going to believe in that. I'm going to continue on my own path. Um, don't forget to join us next week for our final episode of Series 1 as we sit down with the brilliant David B. Horn, number one best-selling author, TEDx speaker and entrepreneur. What a way to finish Series 1. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Flexi. If you're interested in checking out their subscription management app, you can check out their website at flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. And of course, download it from the App Store. Thank you as always for listening. We'll see you next time.